Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a library. On either side of the road, the country stretched interminably into space. No trees, no lanes, no cluster of cottages or hamlet, but mile upon mile of bleak moorland, dark and untraversed, rolling like a desert land to some unseen horizon. No human being could live in this wasted country, thought Mary, and remain like other people. The very children would be born twisted like the blackened shrubs of broom, bent by the force of a wind that never ceased, blow as it would from east and west, from north and south. Their minds would be twisted too, their thoughts evil, dwelling as they must amidst marshland and granite, harsh heather and crumbling stone. They would be born of strange stock who slept with this earth as a pillow beneath this black sky. They would have something of the devil left in them still. On wound the road across the dark and silent land, with never a light to waver for an instant as a message of hope to the traveler within the coach. Perhaps there was no habitation in all the long one and twenty miles that stretched between the two towns of Bodmin and Lawston. Perhaps there was not even a poor shepherd's hut on the desolate highway. Nothing but the one grim landmark that was Jamaica Inn. Mm, Kia ora. Uh, Welcome to Books and Beyond. This is Alison and Karen has just started us off with an excerpt from Daphne du Maurier's Jamaica Inn. We've been imagining Cornwall this week because we welcome back a a colleague uh, from a wonderful trip to that part of the world. And her stories reminded us of... um, what we love about Cornwall, um, and I'm just having a um, something just went wrong on my my computer, but I'm back back to us now. Oh, maybe it was uh, the mention of Cornwall. I'm the, sure it yes. was the devil. It was the Cornwall devil. I think it was. <laughs> I think something sort of weird and mysterious just happened. Um, so, but all of this reminded of us, us of why we love books that were set there. Um, so we've brought some in today. And to because, start with, yeah, um, we're going to have some Cornwall love. So, um, we're, and because we're surely not the only ones, Karen, who think Daphne du Maurier when we hear Cornwall. Um, her, her novels have been described as moody and resonant. And um, I think they verge on the paranormal myself. So, so shall we, speaking of Daphne du Maurier, um, there might be some people newer to, um, to reading and who might not have heard of Daphne du Maurier, but just so we don't have to keep saying Daphne du Maurier, do you think we could call her DDM, like your ex-favorite uh, author uh, DFW? My favorite, yeah. Um, well, actually, in the um, pictorial memoir called Enchanted Cornwall, she is called D. Du M. Ah, yes, the do, very important. So the French bloodline. I read a wonderful biography of Daphne Moray written by the author Margaret Forster. Always recommend biographies of authors written by other authors. And in fact, the end papers of the Margaret Forster biography trace back as Gerald du Maurier, so that's Daphne's father, was fond of doing the du Maurier bloodline back to the French Revolution. Uh, so Gerald du Maurier... Did you notice I said A instead of Anne? <laughs> oh, I'm getting yes. into the French. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Uh. Um, so, uh, Gerald du Maurier, Daphne's father, 
du Maurier pair, we mm-hmm. could say, the debonair, charming, highly successful actor um, with three daughters who he unusually for the times, we're in Edwardian times here, uh, treated as intelligent beings. And they were Angela, Daphne and Jeanne, or as they were called, Piffy Bing and Bird. Fabulous. If that doesn't take you back. Daphne was the odd one. Bing was the odd one. Clever, pretty, and talented, but also silent, watchful, and shy. Mm -hmm. And there was a particular empathy between her and her father, very important, who loved his daughters but did long for a boy as well. And Daphne was convinced that she was a boy. She refused to wear skirts. She would wear only trousers. This was definitely not an age when girls were allowed to wear trousers. The boy inside, she called it, and it stayed with her all her life. Sometimes she described herself as locking it in a box, and other times she expressed doubt as if it were even true. But it recurred. It was a recurring theme in her life from her first crush on a French teacher to her later close friendship with a publisher's wife. All her life, really, DJM was frustrated but also fascinated by the physical and emotional differences between the sexes and her most hero and heroine or we could say most hero hero mm-hmm. mary in jamaica inn is always being told how much she's like a boy by the other characters in the book uh and even when she was living so DUM, back to DUM, even when she's living her girl side she did always declare i like this how much she hated nice girls and how she would never be one mm-hmm. she married just going to finish off with this she married a dashing war hero whose nickname was Boy. Boy. Boy Browning. How appropriate. Whom she, her first sight of whom, her first sight of who, her first sight of whom was watching him sail into... The harbor, Foy. 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 I think they say Foy. <laughs> yes. Foy Harbor. Thank you, Allison. On a yacht one summer, where she was mm. summering in Cornwall, as she did. Yes, and I think it was love at first sight, wasn't it? Yes. Because um, it's, um, in, this sort of takes me to um, her book, Enchanted Cornwall, because um, it's interesting that D2M's writing is described as moody and resonant because that's how I'd really describe the Cornish landscape from reading books about it. I must admit I've never been to Cornwall. I haven't been yet. Yes, no, neither have I, but you do have um, a pictorial book there, so you've seen at least more than I have. Yes, so this book, um, it's full of photos and descriptions of the the coasts and the coves, the the cliffs, the waves, those rough seas. And Daphne used to spend hours on solitary walks through the moors and fields overlooking the coastal inlets. And she describes combing through the estuaries at low tide and coming across derelict boats that had been shipwrecked or abandoned decades before. And she talks of visiting the boats. She was very fond of an old schooner that was called the Jane Slade. And um, she used to visit this this boat regularly and she said she lay there on the mud flats abandoned to die her hulk rotting but her colorful figurehead proudly challenging the passage of time i used to visit her often climbing aboard and imagining what seas she had once traveled what her history had been who the men were that had manned her now all dead and gone So this schooner, the Jane Slade, was actually the inspiration for her first novel, The Loving Spirit. 
And um, there's a beautiful, well, I thought it was quite beautiful, poem that um, she uh, is in um, Enchanted Cornwall and it's it's one that D2M wrote. And I'll just read the, the first part of it. Um, and it's called The Old Ship. No battered hulk am I, no powered timorous of wind or gale, have I not ridden seas and carried sail beyond the dreams of man, away, away down in the haunted latitudes where lay cold lands unvisited? Oh, tell me why they leave me here so desolate and sore, far from the sea, far from the windswept shore, to die, to die. So lovely, Alison. I do. I do think she's a superior novelist to Paul. Yeah, but yeah, I could see you cringing. <laughs> it was the "Tell Me Why" part. The tell me why. Right. And oh yes, yeah. Um, now um, she ended up. Um, Daphne ended up with the the figurehead of that schooner the um, at her house, um, and so D2M she was obviously a very eccentric woman. I'm quite sure I would have loved her. Yeah, you I think of her. her as the kind of sorry, uh, you think of her as the kind of person that um, you'd love to have at a dinner party. Absolutely. But it's funny in the Margaret Forster biography, she's quoted as having said that her big dream in childhood was not to be called to come down to dinner. So maybe maybe dinner is not the right place. No, maybe not. Um, and she wrote about Cornwall, I know that no person will ever get into my blood as a place can, as Cornwall does. People and things pass away, but not places. It's the perfect place in which to write the books which made her famous. Absolutely. So that's from Jamaica in on. That was her first big bestseller. Yeah. And, you know, they were often called gothic novels. Um, and what... What exactly would we say is a, a gothic novel? Well, I just learned um, fairly recently in my long life that you know, I knew everyone knows or everyone who's worked in a library knows that, um, well, many people who worked in the library mm-hmm. know that the first gothic novel, the gothic literature, is always considered to be Horace Walpole's book in the, from the late 18th century, which was called The Castle of Otranto. And he actually subtitled it a gothic story. But I didn't know until recently that he did that on purpose as a joke to imply that it was a a throwback, let's say, just in the way that Gothic architecture and Gothic art would have been a throwback by the late 18th century. So um, the prominent features that he introduced in the Castle of Otranto would be mystery, doom, ghosts, as you were saying, the touch of the paranormal you mentioned before, an anti-hero. So this is the flawed protagonist with monstrous elements, and we can think... um, Mr. Rochester, oh, yes, uh, madness, hereditary curses, an unnerving atmosphere, and um, so it's just some examples. In the 19th century, Frankenstein and Jane Eyre would be oh, yes. uh, gothic novels, and in our time, Toni Morrison's Beloved, whose protagonist is a former slave who's haunted by the ghost of her elder daughter. Yeah, and because um, D2M, she definitely has the anti-hero, doesn't she? And the, the mystery and that unnerving atmosphere, um, which she does especially well in her book set in Cornwall, um, as as we heard in, in the opening that you read from Jamaica Inn. Yeah, Jamaica Inn, the book of wild man, wild land, dark secrets and violent ends. 
So um, this in this book, basically, um, the premise is orphaned Mary, Mary recently orphaned, is going to live with her aunt and uncle at Jamaica Inn on the Cornwall coast. The driver of her coach, in a menacing, in a moment already setting up the menace, tells Mary as they ride along that the coaches once did stop, used to stop at Jamaica Inn for refreshments and good conversation, but now no one ever stops there. And in fact, when she gets there, she discovers that her uncle, married to the innkeeper, um, her aunt, is the head of a band of pirates who wreck ships and steal their cargo, leaving the crews to drown. Her, the younger brother of the bad um, pirate, um, bad law-breaking bad. uncle, mm-hmm. what, what'd you call him? Badden. Yeah, the bad one. <laughs> uh, is, um, the younger brother, on the other hand, is also a lawbreaker. He's a horse thief, but that's quite petty compared to leaving um, crews of ships to drown. And he has a disarming smile, and his voice was not unpleasing. And he seems to want to befriend her, so that's already laying something out yeah. for you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's a bad and but. And she can't trust him because of the bad blood and the disreputable occupation. So she lets him ride away, and she notes that he would ride hatless, careless of the wind and the rain, choosing his own road. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I just want to put this in because it's so great. Um, he, she meets up with him. She's going one direction. He's going another direction. Um, and he, she says that she can't go with him. But then in the end, she calls his name. He reaches down his hand and he swings her up onto the cart, onto the bench of the cart next to her. And this is the great part. He gives her the reins. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's wonderful. Isn't that not wonderful? Yes. So and modern. Very modern. And, you know, I guess that's one of the non-Gothic characteristics of Daphne's novels, um, the happy endings. Um, so I believe that the term that um, has won out is Gothic romance, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah. I always worry that people think that it means like the formulaic. Well, they are formulaic in their own way, but the plots are so unformulaic. Although they have that formula, they end up with the happy ending. Um, yeah, really great writing. So also we have also really great for transferring onto the screen, which might um, pick up on her um, ability to, to cast the scene, is the fact they make such great movies. And we have at the library the Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece version of um, Jamaica mm-hmm. Inn with Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara, as well as the BBC television series adaptation. Yeah, it's interesting that um, relationship with Hitchcock, isn't it? Um, but now, uh, this week, I've been reading Frenchman's Creek um, by D. Um Now, this one's a historical novel set in Cornwall during the reign of Charles II. And it's about an impulsive English woman who's a lady who falls in love with a French pirate. As you do. Because um, Cornwall has a, a huge history of pirates and smuggling and illicit trade, uh, particularly with the French. And um, the, this, I found a lot of this quite amusing. But someone warns, tries to warn her off, this, uh, the French pirate. And they say to her, I must warn you that he is the type of man who would have list, little respect for your person. And she says, you mean he is quite unscrupulous? I fear so. And his men are most desperate and savage. They are pirates, madam, and Frenchmen at that. (laughs) So what is worse than a a pirate, I guess, is a French pirate. Um, And I must admit, as I say, I found the romance in it 
quite amusing. But it does border on the erotic, um, but not, I guess, not in an overt way. Um, there's one scene that I laughed at when Lady, uh, called Lady St. Coulomb, she's on the boat with the, the pirate called Jean Benoit, and she's wearing nothing but a towel, mm. which I'm hopeful is quite a, a big towel. But um, she says quite innocently, but in the meanwhile, what are we going to do until my clothes dry? And he, he watched her, a ghost of a smile on his lips. In France, they would tell you there is only one thing that we could do. But perhaps that is a custom peculiar to my countrymen. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. But I've actually, I did, that was a bad is that, Am I reading that correctly? There's only yes. one thing we could do? Is yes. That, That's what I'm thinking the same thing. <laughs> and I should have actually read it in a, a proper French accent. Uh, yes, to make absolutely. Yeah, so Daphne du Maurier actually talked about uh, Frenchman's Creek. She called it a romance with a big R. Uh, she also did, in, in an understatement, she also called Rebecca a bit on the gloomy side. Mm, interesting, isn't it? Um, now, speaking of um, gloominess, I really feel that Cornwall is the star of the show in these books because it has so many moods and a sense of eeriness around it. Um, now, uh Continu- so back to Cornwall. Yes, continuing <laughs> with the Cornwall theme. I've been reading the Poldark books again this week. So that's the Poldark series by Winston Graham. But um, look, I don't really don't think they've aged well at all. Um, and if you compare his writing to D.W.M.'s, which I really believe have stood the test of time very well. Well, it could be for lovers of historical fiction, which was actually also historically written. You know, people still read Walter Scott, so I'm sure they could find room for Winston Graham. Yeah, and um, people... There are people that still do enjoy him. So perhaps, perhaps people say Walter people yes. say Walter Scott was a greater writer than Winston Graham. Yeah, I suppose he's not really in the pantheon, is he? But that, he certainly was in his time. In his time, yes. But now the TV series is a, a different story altogether. Um, the the Poldark books have made absolute TV gold because Ross Poldark is a handsome and smouldering. He's a red coat who's come back to Cornwall from America where he was fighting in the Revolutionary War. So he's a war hero. Um, he's an entrepreneur, a, a mining magnate, and he marries his housekeeper. Why, how fearfully democratic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he's a, a good and a decent man. Of course, he's very wealthy. And he becomes a politician. Uh, lots of things happen. It's a real saga. But it's almost as if it, it was written for TV, which, of course, it wasn't at the time. But um, Cornwall is a, a huge star of the TV series. The the coast, the moors, the fog, the, the giant crashing waves and the danger and beauty. Um, now, there there are two series, um, an older one and a, a new one, but I prefer the, the more recent one myself. And now this, the TV series, is something that we can recommend at the libraries as one of the challenges in our great summer read. Watch a movie or a TV show based on a book. Yeah, and... Um, I'm sure you'll enjoy enjoy those ones. Now, um, moving up to more modern times, Karen and I discovered this week that we have another author that we, we both love who's written um, books that are set in Cornwall, and that is the writer Patrick Gale. 
Yeah, so um, I, I loved the one book by Petra Gale I read, which was Rough Music. Um, and I picked it back up from the library for another look for this show. And um, it's funny because it actually, I think it was the very same copy <laughs> that I had read 18 years ago. Um, so it's set in a Cornish vacation town. And in fact, in the back of the book, there's an interview with Patrick Gale. And the question is, your novels are often set in places you know very well. What significance does the setting have for you? in this novel and he replies in my Cornish novels I've noticed Cornwall is almost like an extra character and functions to expose character flaws and then to start a healing process I wasn't so clear that there was a healing process going well I guess there was but it's a it's not a um, a rosy outcome book what matters anyway so Patrick Gale goes on what matters with a landscape in fiction is what it draws from the characters so I think what he means draws from is drawing what I would call drawing out of the characters yeah Yeah. so in my reading this book so my read of this book is that what he's drawing out of the characters what Cornwall is drawing out of the characters is an attempt to get them to dare is is to stimulate them to want to dare uh, and step outside their respectable lives or the ones where they're being too lazy taking what's convenient for the various different characters at different times there's different time periods woven together carried on uh, and alternate chapters woven is the word i believe as i said um there's a funny part at the start of the book where will reflects back on how his too timorous life um all started with the first time he noticed how so untimor how so how he was so timorous is there an adjective for most more timorous timorous yes. <laughs> when he didn't um just take up and head off to new zealand oh. where his first lover was from and where he had returned the lover had returned to take a summer job on a sheep farm followed by a lengthy seismology doctorate that sounds like a really New Zealand thing yes. to do, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was funny. It was just like the Duncan Fallowell gave his book about traveling to New Zealand the title Going As Far As I Can, mm. uh, English writer Duncan Fallowell. And it's the sort of similar thing. So what what did Patrick Gale think of to be as far off from Will? Um, so, But on the other hand, even if Will had not really noticed how timorous he was until uh, later, he in the book he's presented to us as someone who's meticulous about flicking sand. And in a very telling episode, which I thought was had one of the best lines in the book his cousin his wilder cousin comes from america and meets them in this cornish vacation town and she in asks him to play truth or dare with them with her and he doesn't know what truth or dare he's never heard of it he plays monopoly or some mm-hmm. similar game and she says oh you know it's a game stupid guy you know it's your board so what you do is i say truth or dare and then you have to either say the truth or do whatever dare i set you and his reaction is this did not sound like a very happy game. <laughs> Your timorous will. Yes, he right. says, can't we just play make-believe? I'm so, to Exactly, exactly. So, um, Frances is Will's mother, and she embarks on an affair, stepping outside of her comfort zone, with Bill, who's the father of this little girl, and he's a writer with a motorcycle and a leather jacket. And um, they have an exchange that he says, I think I love you. And she says, oh, no, no such thing. And he says, and you love me. And she says, well, actually, I cordially disliked you when you first got here. So I'm not so sure. And I thought this was quite telling, speaking of Daphne Duhem. He replies to her, and in the sort of books you read, that always means love. Mm. Love denied. Come away. Let me save you. And here is the fail, how Bill fails. So Bill thinks he's saving Francis, but Francis actually wants to save herself. 
and um, she finds his manuscript, and he's writing about them. And she reads the paragraph that he's just written, and it's a description of a woman packing, presumably to leave her husband, in a hurry. And she says it included typically male assumptions of the things a woman in such a position would think to take with her. Silk stockings and lipstick, (laughs) rather than pearls, a good book, and a stash of housekeeping money. So I thought that was really good. She says, he'll learn. And she actually decides she wants to go away alone. And she writes on the manuscript. She only lets him think that she's coming to shut him up and satisfy his ego. In fact, she's going off on her own, alone. And, you know, what this made me think of is after our conversation with on the Joan Didion show that we did about self-respect is that what Gail is playing with here is respectability versus self-respect. So... Mm. I yes, I agree. Yeah. Right on, right up our alley. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that kind of brings me around. Speaking of respect and everything, to one that I uh, was reading this week. I, I reread it, and that's the Patrick Gale book called "A Perfectly Good Man." And I really loved this this book. It's very moving and emotional, and it asks the question: What is goodness? And um, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be a good man? And so the good man in the book is this uh, much-loved priest of a a Cornwall parish. Um, And it really explores how do do you live as a priest in this modern world, in the 21st century? Is it possible to stay virtuous when we've got so much out there that will lead us into temptation? Um, But once again, that rugged landscape of Cornwall plays a really big part in the story and it's told from multiple perspectives, which I, I liked. But that shifts... The truth shifts, you know, with the, the multiple um, narrators. There's some really disturbing aspects to the story. There's an extremely nasty character um, that I think is, is written about well, it's described well. And then if you add to it the religious aspects of a very insular community, you've really got quite a novel. But I suppose Cornwall being insular as well, I think that adds to its mystique. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Patrick Gale seems to be, so in the book, um, you know, Rough Music, he's, the character of Will is semi-autobiographical um, for various reasons. And there is this, also the fact of being a gay man and the truth that society would put on you and the truth that you would live. And um, Will is further ahead than his brother-in-law who is closeted and it, it plays a lot with that. Um, aspect of the multiple viewpoints and multiple truths, but in the end, it's. Oh, I hate to sound so pat, but it's your truth, isn't it? Mm, mm. Yeah. So um, I do realize. How, how late are we? No, we've got plenty of time. Oh, so, so we can mention yes. we've got a really exciting. Yeah. So um, I said right away when we started talking about Cornwall, what did we say? We said there's one thing we can't forget to mention, which is the King Arthur legends part ah, of Cornwall. Yes. So in the Arthurian legend, um, it's thought by many people. Nobody knows exactly where it was set. Nobody actually even knows if King Arthur was real. But it is thought that if he was real and if he did live, which would have been in the 5th century after the Romans had left Britain uh, and the and the Scots were trying to invade that um, it could very well be the historical places could have been in Cornwall. So we have Tintagel Castle, for oh, example, yes. that you can go and visit, which is legend is that that's Arthur's birthplace. There's a Merlin's Cave. Um, what else? 
the Cam- Camelot? Oh, yeah, Camelot. Mm. Camelford. That's right, exactly, yeah. Uh, so that would be the site of King Arthur's castle where he actually held his famous court of the round table. There's no definitive record of where it was, but it is believed. Once again, it is believed. And then there's the site of his final battle, Slaughterian, um, oh, thought to be the site of the final battle against Mordred, who's evil, King Arthur's good. And interestingly, I learned that Slaughterian, slaughter, is not a word for being slaughtered in battle. Oh. <laughs> it actually is an old English word that means bog or swamp. Oh, right. Because it sounds to me quite Harry Potterish too. For some reason, I don't know why, but oh yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I actually wanted to take this moment to put a call out for some of the um, some of the King Arthur books that we've loved. So we've got Rosemary Sutcliffe, right? We're both fans. Oh yes. So this is a true fantasy book, Sword at Sunset, um, written where uh, Arthur is actually called Artos, the Bear Cub, and he's trying to hold off the barbarian Picts and Scots. Um, so, and yeah, now Rosemary Sutcliffe, I remember, well, mainly I remember taking them out from the Onihunga Library as a child. Um, and I remember that. Perhaps a teen. Oh, she's, no, no, no. Rosemary Sutcliffe yeah, wrote lots the, of books for children. Sword yeah. of Sunset is more teen or adult. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the kids' books. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So we've got them both in there. And then we've got, um, T.H. White, so I want to put in a word for this, speaking of what ages is for. This is for all ages. The children read the first part about Arthur's education, which is the sword and the stone, but adults can read the rest of the book, which looks into the medieval mind, and then um, can actually look into the original, the Thomas Mallory book, Le Mort d'Artour. Oh, yes. Oh, look, there's so much to to look at. That's lots of recommendations for us. But we're just about out of time, so I just want to remind everyone that um, you can access our show notes um, via our website, the Auckland Library's website, um, and also through the Planet FM website. So, look, until next time, happy reading and haerera. Haerera and kakite anō. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and... Catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day.